I was just hearing a story over Thanksgiving about how my uh, my aunts and uncles on my uh, my mom's side they they had this childhood memory of my grandmother bringing home turtles and they're like oh my god we're getting a family pet no no <laughs> the next day they had soup I follow uh, a lesson I learned from another engineering leader a while back which is be intense at the right time I think the the very first thing would probably be empathize, right? That's something people always learn too late in their career, and they always realize it and repeat it, the importance of it, eventually. Um, the sooner you come to that realization, the better off you're going to be. Very happy to have uh, Greg Wee here today with us. So lots of uh, senior individual contributors in our field transition to management after a while. Uh, and a lot of them actually suck at their job being a manager. I would say Greg is one of the rare ones who is a very, very good engineer, uh, from what I can tell, and also a very, very good manager uh, that really understand how to drive people, how to motivate them, uh, how to move the agenda in a fashion that combines the force between managers uh, and the individual contributors. So we invited him to be here with us today to share his wisdom about career growth, startups, and life in general. So Greg, is work-life balance a thing? It's been a question that's been part of our, uh, our, like our AMAs that we do, uh, Ask Me Anything, with all of engineering. People have asked questions about this sort of thing we think is really important, and we're not in this for the short term, so you need to be able to uh, you know, have a consistent level that you can bring yourself to work with and, and keep that up for a long period of time. Uh, and if something's unsustainable, then, you know, you got to work with your manager to fix it. Um, but, you know, I also am, you know, I also acknowledge that the more you work, sometimes, but not always, it can result in better recognition. It can result in uh, more contribution, more impact, right? You know, of course, there, there's also, you know, I, I think a lot of this has been discussed as part of the four-day work week. There's also very much diminishing returns. And so, you know, sure, you can work a lot more and actually have nothing to show for it, right? And so... Um, but, you know, there, there is actual impact that can be had by working more. Uh, and so finding that balance of sort of what is the reward you're looking for from your professional life versus what you're willing to sacrifice in your personal life. I mean, I think that's something that everyone has to determine what that right balance is for themselves. There's not one prescribed answer. Uh, it depends on your own circumstances, depends on what you're willing to tolerate. Right. I want to push on that a little bit. Right. One. Uh, we're kind of making the assumption, and given our audience and generally who comes on the show, we're making the assumption that we're talking about knowledge workers, right? When you say there's sort of a nonlinear return uh, in terms of how much you put in and how much you get out. Um, more broadly, though, in the economy, I think there are lots of people whose work and uh, life balance is a little bit more linear in that if you put in 50% more time, you may get close to 50% more Absolutely. output. Right. If you're like a, a delivery factory. driver, Uber driver, right. right. You get paid right, for right. every single ride. Yeah. Right. So I think like that part of the argument may not apply to everybody, but I think the other part does, which is, you know, when you said you have your professional life and then your personal life uh, and then finding that balance, I guess the question there is where's the boundary between professional and personal life? And some people would argue that if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. I don't know if that's like a fantasy in your yeah, opinion. I, I don't really How much that, of that can really overlap? Nah, I understand like, you know, you want to find a job that you're able to enjoy, that you're able to at least tolerate. Um, but I don't know. I mean, like 
for most people, if you didn't get paid for your job, would you still do it? Probably not for 99.999% of people, right? The, the money is, of course, a very important element of it. So I, I understand the sentiment, which is, you know, try to make it more pleasant, but I don't believe necessarily that in, in the full. So I think that, um, that there are certainly going to be cases where you see an overlap in, in personal and professional life where your friends you know, uh, could be from both domains, right? And so you see that, that potential overlap. I, I think that the balance is a tough one because it has to be driven by yourself. And, you know, for to start getting, you know, a little bit more candid, a little bit more spicy, I think that many people lack that discipline. You know, they haven't had to really introspect and think about what is the appropriate balance for themselves. They pattern match against the people they see, and it's not always right. You know, maybe they'll do what they see the parents doing, what their peers are doing. And yep. it's, it's not a good fit for what they need. Uh, and they haven't been as thoughtful about that. And so as a result, they find the wrong balance. Let me, let me poke out that even more. So there's this famous term in Chinese called Neijuan in recent years. I was years. literally going to ask oh, okay. that very question. Because uh, <laughs> nice. I talked nice. to a friend from high school who currently is doing a tech job in Shenzhen. Um, yeah. And we talked about this very idea. But please go ahead. Yeah, so Neijuan, uh, Hansel's also going to bring up, uh, I guess translates to involution is the official translation. But basically it means with limited resources, everybody's trying to, you know, get the last piece of the pie by working the shit out themselves, right? But the, the return is very little, right, uh, for individual person in that system. So I guess my question for you, um, or for, you know, for the three of us here is, um, you know, I, I tend to overwork, right? Uh, and uh, you know me, right? I turn to work a lot uh, and sometimes burn out. Um, I think what bothers me usually uh, is I put in the work, right? But it's sometimes you don't feel rewarded. I feel that I feel that's the problem for a lot of people that's actually driven, who doesn't mind putting in the work, but there's no balance in terms of the outcome we think we should receive, right? There's a misalignment. Obviously, you know, we are also biased as the people who are contributing to this common goal. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that point where, you know, if you told someone, hey, if you put in an extra X percent of time, it will guarantee this outcome. A lot of people would take that trade, you know, and if you gave them a gradation and said, if you take Y percent and Z percent, here's the additional incentive for each one of those levels. A lot of people would go into that trade knowingly. Um, where it becomes difficult is, as you mentioned, you know, case where people work their butt off and there's no guarantee of recognition, no guarantee of impact, right? Right. Um, I think, so, so one element here is people view their output and view their impact from their personal perspective, not the perspective of external people. Right. Um, and really the the way to maximize the utility of, of what you're contributing at work is to think about what is uh, going to be the perspective of others, right? Like, is it visible? Mm -hmm. Is it something that uh, people are asking for or will recognize, right? Right. Um, you know, and, and I've you know heard of plenty of times where engineers come to me and say, hey, you know, I busted my butt on this thing. I'm like, I had no idea it happened, right? Right. And so, like, you know, if I don't know that and I don't ask the questions to find that out, there's no way for anyone to be recognized for that, that level of extra effort. Right. 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 You have to be uh, advocate for yourself. Right. Self-advocacy. Yeah. I mean, and also yeah. I think part of this is sort of a, the, the lens of empathy, right? Thinking about how will other people view your work? Right. Um, is, is what you're doing actually going to be beneficial and helpful to them from their perspective? Right. Right. Makes sense. 
Yeah, and I think there's a, a related concept people talk about, quote unquote, managing up, right? I, I think it's the better way to put it, in my opinion, is how do you make your manager's job easier, right? Like your manager's got tons of other stuff going on. Like, is it obvious to your manager who's like, you know, generally the most influential person when it comes to how you're rewarded and recognized in a professional and monetary manner uh, on your job? Are you making it clear to your manager what you're accomplishing, why it matters, and making their job easy? And if you're not, and you're just sort of sulking and being unhappy with the situation, it's not really going to help, right? If anything, you just become a difficult employee, and you know, no one really benefits from that. And to add, I mean, I think part of that is sharing your motivations, right? Part of bringing people along is saying, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff. Here's why I'm doing it, and getting them to say, wow, that's great. I understand exactly why you're putting in that extra effort and what it's going to drive. If you don't share the motivation and all they can observe is the kind of external uh, activities that occur, it might not be enough. They might say, I, I have no idea why Seed is rewriting this in the middle of the night. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, and so, you know, without that that sort of uh, explanation, it's going to be really difficult to, to actually show why you're doing that extra work. Yeah, don't, don't use the real example on the show. I'm just kidding. That's definitely something I observed uh, in kind of while growing my career, right? Uh, that's definitely a very, very good point um, for, for a lot yeah. of folks. And I follow uh, a lesson I learned from another engineering leader a while back, which is be intense at the right time. Mm-hmm. And what this means is you can't be 100% all the time at every single instance. Uh, and for a couple of reasons. The obvious one, work-life balance and being able to pace yourself. But also you need to dif- differentiate yourself. You need to show that you have another gear. And if you're only have one level at all times, it's really hard for people to understand when you're stretching yourself, when you're actually doing more. Uh, And so, you know, for me personally, you know, I try to follow that very strictly. You know, I've been in a position throughout my career, both as a leader, as an IC. uh, I I don't work long hours. You know, maybe in exceptional cases, something is going on, I might stretch. But um, I, you know, generally speaking, I work a pretty typical eight hours a day. and That's it. Uh, I don't sign on at night. I don't sign on at in uh, on the weekend. And you know, I try to keep my focus. So when something does come up, and let's say there's an outage in the middle of the night, or it's really important to repair something, sure, I might spend a little bit of extra time, but it's far and away the the abnormal case. And that doesn't just apply now. I'm, I'm certainly being self aware here that of like, hey, I'm in, I'm in a position to define my schedule uh, as it stands right now. But you know, even before then, uh, that's been my my own uh, methodology. Cool. Yeah, this is very uh, thoughtful, actually. It's a uh, great, great quote is yeah. uh, to be intense at the right times. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, dive into the actual show. Um, so like I told you, Greg, um, we want to get personal on this show in the best possible way. Uh, so this is not so your... So what did t- you eat this morning? <laughs> so I had a, a Costco uh, cheese danish. Sounds pretty gross. Uh, thanks. Um, <laughs> it sounds great. Right. What are you talking about? <laughs> all right. Cool. Um yeah, but really want to dive into kind of your life story a little bit, right? Um, let's start from the very beginning. Uh, tell us, where did you grow up uh, and any surprising stories uh, for your childhood? Let's see. So, I don't know what, what generation number I would count as, like, what, two and a half or whatever? But anyways, I was, uh, you know, so my dad was born in China. My mom was born the first, uh, I think, of her family born in Boston, uh, and so, yeah, I was born in Concord, Mass. Uh, I grew up in uh, Marlborough, Massachusetts for less than a year. And then I moved to Newton. Don't remember any of that, of course. Uh, and then, you know, uh, from Newton, um, went to school there all the way through high school, uh, went to MIT um, and 
you know, from there on. So, you know, one thing I'll say is that, um, you know, my extended family, uh, both mom and dad's side, um, you know, there's sort of a, a group of immigrants to the Boston Chinatown from Toysan. And, um, you know, it's, it's a, you know, kind of a, a group and also a dialect of the language that isn't that common outside of Boston. Uh, they're kind of pockets here and there, but there was a big immigration wave in the 50s. Uh, that's when my parents uh, came to the U.S. And, um, you know, that was when, when a lot of people from that village came to, to the U.S. So you'll, you'll find sort of pockets of people that speak that dialect. And it's Zhou Shan, right? Where is this? Zhou Ch- Shan, right, in Chinese. It's, I think it's Taishan in, in Mandarin. Taishan? Okay, I see. Yeah. So, anyways, cool. yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you can sort of understand it a little bit if you know Cantonese, but not not too much. Um, Interesting. But uh, yeah, it's, it's so you know the the community is one where they kind of uh, you know join together. My uh, my grandfather, you know, he started off in sort of typical fashion, working in restaurants and doing those types of jobs. Uh, eventually, uh, became part of the Lee Credit Union, which you know it's kind of the story here. Banks wouldn't lend to Chinese immigrants, and so they formed their own credit unions to help support the communities. Damn. So they came over as one of the, I guess, like the hardcore immigrants, right? I, a lot of the time is, times I talk to people about like the quote unquote immigrant experience. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's really different depending on where you're from and when you got here. Like it's a totally different experience. Uh, Seed and I are of a very different generation and very different circumstances than folks that came over two, three generations ago. Yeah. I mean, you, you show up here with, I mean, essentially nothing, you know, you have Probably the equivalent of, you know, a little bit of cash, just enough to, you know, find a place to live. But uh, that's about it. And you just have to kind of figure out how you're going to make a living for them. So, yeah, definitely really interesting uh, hearing about that. And, uh, I mean, honestly, something I wish I knew even more about of, of what their stories were. Cool. And how has that, you know, uh, impacted your story here, right? Because you were born here, born and raised, American kid. Um, obviously your family has this heritage, like how does that play into your story? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been a part of growing up, you know, I would go into Chinatown a lot as a kid. Uh, you know, we, we'd even have these kind of annual traditions. One of them was, uh, the Lee family banquets. My mom's, uh, from the, the Lee and, and, uh, we have these banquets once a year. Uh, and basically the entire Lee association, anyone who's part of that, that, uh, extended family would be there for a huge banquet. It'd be like a 20 course meal. Uh, Sorry, when you say, did you say elite? No, Lee, the Lee Lee family. It's both, it's both. Oh, like the Lee, like L-I or L-E-E. Correct, either spelling, but the character that, you know, is a tree, radical and all that, yeah. Got it, got Uh, it, got it. But anyway, so so it's the Lee Family Association uh, is is the the group that would host the banquet. Um, And so, yeah, I have great memories of this growing up where, you know, just once a year we'd show up and eat a a ton of food. Um, But, you know, otherwise, you know, spend a lot growing up, you know, visiting my grandparents, great-grandparents, um, and just kind of learning from them. So yeah, it's, it's just been a, a ever-present part growing up. Do you speak Cantonese or some version of, of Chinese? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I learned uh, a little bit of Mandarin in high school, but I haven't been obviously you know using it actively. So I, it's not something that is uh, top of mind. I, I'd have to probably refresh myself to really get back into it again. Um, <laughs> okay. it, it hasn't been a big part. I mean, I think that uh, you know my parents would speak uh, Chinese with their parents, but um, there really wasn't any intention of that growing up towards teaching a second language. So, what, what would, would you, you say, say is a surprising, surprising fact about your childhood? Hmm. What would I say is a surprising fact? 
I don't know. I mean, honestly, I had a pretty normal upbringing growing up in the suburbs, going to rather normal schools. All of my hobbies and activities are probably pretty, uh, uh, pretty normal. I mean, very academically oriented, math team, science team, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. Very typical hobbies, computer games, that kind of stuff. So I, I, I don't know if there's anything I would say that, that jumps out as like, yeah, that was really strange. You know, it's not like I, you know, secretly was a child actor or something like that and retired from Hollywood. <laughs> I don't think that's normal, dude. You went, you went to, you went to Newton, which is known to be a very competitive district for uh, for schools, right? So. And I've heard uh, of you, MIT before. And you went to yeah, MIT. It's a good school, <laughs> <laughs> right? So, so let's dig into that a little bit. Uh, so you went to New Newton, right? So, what is that like? Uh, I assume when you grew up, I mean, nowadays there are so many Asians in Newton, but I assume um, when you grew up, that's not the case, right? So, yeah, I mean, and I would still say even even with like it wasn't a negligible population. No, there's still a good group of, of Asians in Newton. Um, but also at the same time, they're not evenly distributed, right? There's, there's neighborhoods where there tend to be more Asian American families. Um, and even the same in high school or middle school, you know, we would associate, uh, with each other in kind of groups of friends and things like that. So I, I think there was, um, you know, definitely still an element where, you know, my identity as an Asian American was a really big part of my social circle and, and how I grew up. Um, you know, it was, it was interesting, you know, Newton, I think at the time was probably, under 20% Asian, probably more than 10%, somewhere in that range. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, definitely probably knew almost all of them, uh, you know, in high school. So it was just sort of a, a natural part that, you know, you, you kind of formed those, those bonds. Are you the only child growing up? I uh, know, I, I have an older brother. So yeah, grew up with, with an older brother, he's two years older. Um, and, um, you know, I think definitely uh, just that's, that was sort of another big part of growing up. It's just my, my brother and I having shared interests and things like that. Um, you know, playing video games together, that kind of thing, playing basketball. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So last question for this section. Uh, so what, what roles did, you, did your parents play when you were growing up? I think it was, it was interesting, right? Especially when I compare my experience with others. Um, you know, one thing I'll, I'll kind of start with is in terms of my academic focus or really being driven to succeed. And as it really turns out, a lot of that was myself. Just putting a lot of pressure on, on my own to, to do well. Um, you know, I think for my parents, the idea was, you know, making sure that I was still enjoying myself, making sure that I was being, I was fulfilled. Um, because I think they saw those kind of pressures on themselves and, and their peers where their mm -hmm. parents would put that academic success above all else. Right. You know, one of the, you know, life goals for my grandfather was every single child should go through college. And that, that was, that was at the top. Um, and, you know, I understand why that's his focus as, as someone who's a, you know, a recent immigrant is you want to make sure they're able to succeed in, in society. Um, but at the same time, it also pushes out other things potentially if that's, that's their primary focus. And, you know, I think, um, you know, for my parents, they, they were just there to make sure to support me. Um, you know, a funny example happened when, uh, you know, preparing for SATs, right? And I was, you know, I took out a whole bunch of study, um, SAT books from the library. I went through like dozens of past exams and studied everything. And, you know, my parents were debating, hey, should we, you know, send Greg to uh, some prep school to get, you know, more prepared? And they're like, we'll see how he does in the PSAT. And I, you know, did very well on it. And my parents were like, yeah, it turns out we were wrong. We need to force any of that on you. You're going to do it yourself. And so you're probably going to push yourself harder than any other prep school or we will. So just, just go do what you got to do. Um, and then outside of that, yeah, I mean, I think 
they were just kind of there to make sure we had, we could try out a whole bunch of different things. You know, I think that's sort of what my, my parents were really keen on is at least letting us try things a little bit, you know, things like piano lessons or tennis lessons or, um, you know, going to soccer camp or a basketball camp, just like, you know, trying out different things and seeing uh, what appealed to us so that we could find what would be best in life. Just making sure your parents are Asian, right? Oh, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, of course, when looking at report cards, they'd be like, oh, okay, so, you know. But that being said, there really wasn't much to comment on, right? Everything would be like an A already, so there's nothing, there's nothing really. <laughs> nice. Humble brag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's like your, your Asian parents are the reverse Asian parents in this case. Well, I, I, and, I would say a lot of it is kind of cyclical, right? And that yeah. you have strict parents and then parents that react to that and say, we're not going to be like that. And then you have kids that become strict again saying, hey, this is too lax. I need to really, you know, up the tempo, right? So I don't know. I feel like my, like my, my parents' reaction was very much uh, as like in opposition to a lot of the pressures they got as kids. Very interesting. So was going to MIT sort of like a dream of yours? You know, was it always a goal and you're like, yes, I made it? Because it sounds like you've always sort of been into, you know, as you're saying, like math and science and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, MIT was far and away my first choice. I knew I wanted to get into computer science. I knew I wanted to get into programming. Um, this happened from a young age, I think, you know, so as a bit of background, my dad uh, has a background in electrical engineering. Uh, and so, you know, one of the first things that you know, he made sure my brother and I had was a home computer, right? So we had back this 386, um, really, really old. This is what, two generations before the Pentium, the Pentium. Yeah, because Pentium meaning five. Right. Yeah. So 386 was the, the first home uh, PC and we, you know, played video games on that. And like back in that day, you still had to use, you know, DOS commands and stuff like that. There was no fancy UI for a lot of it. Um, and so, yeah, really got in computers. And we did some uh, summer camp programs that let you play around with some, you know, really rudimentary programming um, and just that that really sparked my interest you know the kind of creativity that it allowed so i always knew i wanted to do computer science and the best options for that uh aside from mit you know other places like stanford um maybe caltech uh uc berkeley uh carnegie mellon of course you know i think schools like that those are definitely ones at the top of my list where i really wanted to make sure to get into a good program there so what's it like once you've, you know, made it to MIT? You know, a lot of people say there's the experience of going from like being the top of your class and the smartest kid, and then now you're with all the other top of the class kids. Uh, what was it actually like at MIT? Oh, that's 100% true. I actually was thinking about this recently of sort of what that experience is like. And the interesting thing is for most colleges, you're going to see a slice of the distribution of academic ability, right? I'm not going to say intelligence or anything like that, but let's just say academic ability. And there's, let's say it's some sort of distribution, maybe normal like, and you're going to get a slice, some, some range of that. Um, at places like MIT, you get the long tail. So the slice starts and it doesn't really have an end. It just goes all the way to the right. Uh, and so part of that experience is a bit of a shock as you encounter some of these folks. Um, you know, oftentimes there is going to be a generational talent in some of these classes. And Harvard and MIT will fight over who gets to, to recruit this person. Um, this will be someone who is a prodigy at math or some other type of field. And you know they'll, they'll be the person to solve unknown problems in the space. Uh, and these will be your classmates, right? And there's just such a, a, an interesting difference working with folks like that. Uh, when you arrive, you can really tell like, oh my goodness, like these, these are all people with incredible levels of, of achievement. 
Um, to give an example, right, uh, in high school, they would give out this optional uh, exam, a math competition. And you'd answer some pretty difficult number theory questions, other sorts of fields, trigonometry, whatever. Um, and if you won, you went to the next round, and then you went to the next round. So it would go from you know regional to national to international. And some of the first people I met, they won, number one, international for math, or physics, biology, chemistry, sometimes multiple. And these are the people that you just, as you, you know, got to know everybody in your dorm for the first time, it's like, oh, hey, you know, hey, tell me a bit about yourself. It's like, oh, yeah, I won, you know, number one in physics in the world last year. Uh, and so, you know, it just is a very interesting, unusual experience to recalibrate against that. Um, the other funny thing, though, is that there's, there's this other recalibration that occurs and everybody else gets used to MIT. So you have these folks that, you know, of course, think very highly of their own abilities because they did so well. Uh, and so they'll say, great, I, you know, high school, I barely did any attention to it. I'm going to sign up for 56 credit hours, 65 credit hours in my first semester and see what happens. Right. The idea being that um, I'm not sure if it's like this at all schools, but they will give courses some number between, say, like six and like 18. And that represents about the number of hours you have to dedicate each week. So somebody taking 65 credit hours means they're going to be spending on average 65 hours a week on classwork. Uh, and then they don't believe in work-life balance clearly. Well, they, they believe they can ace it because of their past accomplishments. Right. And right. about maybe four weeks into the semester, they realize MIT is not like their high school. Uh, and they get absolutely obliterated despite being, you know, these incredibly talented, incredibly intelligent people. Uh, and that brings them down to earth. And so that's why the first semester at MIT is pass fail. Um, because everyone has to do that reset and get used to what it's like to be at such a rigorous place like that. That's interesting. Would you say, having gone to MIT and seen some of these generational talents, in a way, are top institutions like MIT and Harvard and Caltech, et cetera, putting out great talent because they kind of just picked up the great talent to begin with? These people are just born different. Um, versus how much can they really elevate you, right? If, you, if you're already so motivated and so talented to be at a, a school like MIT, one could say that you kind of just need average faculty and still put out some of the best people, right? Well, I, I definitely, you know, I felt like I got a ton of value out of MIT, and I think I learned, uh, I learned different ways of thinking about things than I did before. And so, where I see a lot of the value they bring is one is around pattern matching. I think a really big element to being uh, capable of addressing problems of any sort and just having a really uh, robust toolkit for addressing any anything you encounter in your life is getting to see patterns, both positive and negative, to match off of and being able to apply that, right? This almost reminds me of this case in, uh, or this this pattern in AI called uh, near-miss learning, right? <clears throat> you basically show a lot of examples of the thing that's correct and also things that are off by a little bit to kind of explain the parameters uh, of what is the principles behind it. And think, you can imagine like a bridge that's missing one column isn't successful or like it's missing some key support beam and that kind of thing, right? Uh, so I think one of the things that you benefit from at a school like MIT is getting demonstrations of some of these more sophisticated, more abstract patterns that you can apply later in life. And, and how can you use that to break things down and solve them and apply patterns in a different way? And some of it is even not just patterns, but sort of the meta patterns of how do you actually think about problems in, in a more general way. Um, and I think another certain ben um, uh, benefit that certainly applies to MIT is that you are working with some of the pioneers in this space, right? You're working with people that maybe invented 
the algorithm that you're studying in class and they can explain it in greater depth or greater precision than you might otherwise, right? Rather than playing a game of telephone, you're getting it straight from the source. Um, and so that certainly applies as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's also the idea that just being in an environment full of other people that are as driven and as capable as you drives you to be better, right? It, it just pushes you, it makes you even more competitive. Uh, and so that, that fact alone also makes things, um, you know, even, even better from, from as a result. Yeah, I mean, yeah, makes sense. Going to MIT doesn't guarantee you success, but uh, I mean, it didn't SBF also went to MIT, but also also Richard Feynman. So so you know, it balance, <laughs> balances out. No, I think I don't want to derail this conversation too much, but uh, you know, one of my passion is education, right? And we actually did an episode about education. Um, personally, I think U.S. colleges are prime examples of of elitism. Uh, basically, you know, the, the purpose for, for college education in the U.S. is to put the smartest kids in the best school and give them all the money to play with, right? And hopefully 1% of them actually move the chapter of a human, human being, human life on Earth uh, forward, right? Uh, one could argue that's actually the, the purpose of education, is to picking out those, like you said, generational talents, and give them the, the powers to to drive resources to make changes, right? But some people might want to balance that equation uh, towards education is more about putting resources to as many people's hands as possible, and elevates, right? You know, kind of elevate the the general base uh, equity, of, exactly the human intelligence, yeah. right? It's about raising the tide rather than trying to exactly. isolate outliers and trying to cultivate yeah. those. Yeah. Yeah. So well, what's your what's your you know, short, short analysis on, on that. Um, I mean, I, I guess the question is, are those really mutually exclusive, right? Can't you develop programs that, you know, simultaneously work to benefit everybody in the most, uh, you know, general way while still having the ability to identify those special talents and finding ways then to, you know, curate and, and cultivate special programming for them. Um, I, I think that it's possible to do both, you know, and I think that schools do try to do that when they have some of these, you know, um, what do they call them, honors programs or things like that, finding ways to kind of like have differentiation within the programming. Um, but yeah, I mean, for sure, if you if you look at any sort of uh, you know, development statistics for any country, as general literacy improves, so does quality of life for everybody, right? And so I think that it's, you know, plenty of evidence and fairly undeniable that by raising the tide, you, you benefit society at large. That being said, this approach is not going to get you, you know, faster than light travel and time machines or things like that. So no. uh, if, if that's what you're going for, you know. <laughs> no, <laughs> the dream isn't dead. No. You can you can't move through space faster than light, but you could move space faster than light, right? Technically, with, with warp technology, warp yes. drives. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so come back to Earth was a less interesting question, but uh, so what did you pick? Sass? What? What? Why computer science? is of interest to you. Something about the possibilities, seeing the creativity that occurred in computer games, I was, I was just amazed by it, right? Com comparing the complexity that I saw there to any other media, whether it's you know, books or TVs or anything else like that, being able to see what you could accomplish with a computer and, and then seeing the rate that it advanced, you know, in the course of my lifetime, it would, things would double every single year and it would just be you know, fascinating what we could accomplish with that. So, um, you know, I, just, I knew given the kind of infinite capabilities uh, possible, it was something that um, just fascinated me. If you're interested, there's a great book called Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson um, that kind of talks about this 
from the perspective of sort of like a you know cyberpunk neo Victorian kind of perspective, um, and then introduces concepts of programming and, and the complexities that it brings about. It's very interesting. Cool. Add it to my list. Cool. All right. After MIT, you joined a company called Vista Print. Uh, which is still around today, right? Boston. It is, it is. Yeah, it's yeah. called Simpress, which is like the parent company, Vistaprint's one of their sub-brands. I see. And you stayed there for seven years, which is pretty long in our field. So I wonder, yeah, so I wonder why did you stay that long? And uh, what are the biggest learnings from that uh, experience? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll probably start by saying, you know, I, I'm sure I stayed longer than I probably should have. But hey, you know, that, <laughs> that's what everyone always says about a past job, right? Um, but no, I mean, it was a great experience. And I think that it was something that, gave me a really um, broad perspective uh, that's really helped me out later on. One of the things that was, was interesting is I was put uh, in charge of a team about, I don't know, less than six months out of college. Uh, and so that was a really great kind of accelerator to learning what to do. Define uh, charge. Uh, you know, I basically ownership over the roadmap and projects and processes, all that kind of stuff. So kind of combination scrum master, project manager, and tech lead, I guess. Yeah, it was, so what happened is I joined um, what was originally sort of a four-person Tiger team for a project. And then once that project was completed, it was now a live product and someone had to pick it up. Um, and so, you know, there was a choice of only of the four of us, like two got reassigned to other places. The other engineer was not interested in, in being a team lead. So it was like, all right, you're on a college, but you're the only person here, so you're doing it. I think as I think about the opportunities given to me and sort of the opportunities that I try to create for other people, it's important to give people continual incremental ways to stretch themselves. And I got a lot of those opportunities along the way while I was there to, you know, own new product areas, take on lead projects and to architect brand new systems. You know, at the, it's funny at the time I was like, wow, this is really cool. This is kind of daunting. I'm just going to take it on. In hindsight, I'm like, why the heck did they give this to somebody fresh out of college? Like, I don't know why you would get, <laughs> uh, you know, some system that, you know, counts for like 10% of revenue to somebody to rewrite from scratch without any major supervision, right? It's like, hey, who knows, you know? But either way, you know, I, th I think it was a good opportunity for me to learn. Yeah, so would you say that was your, your biggest takeaway from your time at Vistaprint? I think the biggest takeaway I had um, was one was the importance of cross-team interactions, right? And I think I probably viewed that more from a technical perspective at the time, and now I'm viewing it more from like a social perspective now that I'm, I've gotten into management and into leadership. At the time, you know, there were so many projects that would cross teams, right? We'd launch something brand new and it would affect the entire site, and so you'd have, you know, four or five teams working on it. And thinking about some of the code boundaries, thinking about some of the ways to create services and, and reusable components. These were all things that came to mind um, at the time. So it was like, hey, how do we make it so it's easier for five teams to simultaneously work on something? Now thinking about it from the social perspective, it's like, how do you develop an organization that works effectively at that scale? Because it's very, very difficult to think about growing engineering, growing a tech organization to the point where you can have lots of small teams that work on entirely different things that aren't at all related. And so, Figuring out ways to have that effective collaboration, I think, is, was, was pretty important. Um, lots of other lessons, too, as well, about, you know, how do you find that right balance between what I'll call domain knowledge, things that are relevant only to the organization you're in, versus more general career knowledge, right? And at what point does that balance swing too far to the left and you're really focusing on just things that are only useful in that company? Um, and then it's time for you to leave, right? 
Um, and so everyone has a different balance. For some people, it's like, hey, if I get any of column A, I'm out. So be it. But, you know, I, I do think there are also patterns to be learned from that. But, um, you know, for me, that was definitely one kind of philosophy I took away as well is just, you know, how do I continually evaluate that every quarter, every year of like, hey, how's am I learning anything useful that's applicable outside of the company? Uh, and I keep on asking myself that question. And that's that's something I have continued doing later in my career. Yeah. So, Greg, you mentioned something that's interesting. Uh, you started like most leaders, you started in IC, right? Individual contributor, transitioned into a management role and now in more of a leadership role. What's like a short learning there? And what's something that's really surprising to you in that process? I think that people tend to underestimate just how uh, thoughtful and how detailed and how deliberate you have to be uh, in making leadership and management decisions. And it, it applies just the same as when you're working on technical work. Um, you know, I think it, there's oftentimes a perception that when you get into management, oh, it's just a lot of kind of soft skills and making people feel good. And it's sure. I mean, I think that's that's important, but it's much more nuanced than that. You know, I think that um, this really kind of gets in the subject of emotional intelligence and how do you apply that effectively in a role, right? Um, really being analytical about it as well. You can be analytical without being cold. You can be... Um, you know, detailed and you can be um, really thoughtful about how you do things while still being a warm person. And I think that's, that's, that's critical. Got it. Yeah. I, I've only been an IC up until this point. And I think for most individual contributors, we don't really like, it's almost a black box to us, like what management does. And people like to, to complain about how management comes across, but they never really think about, okay, what's happening on the other side of this and how are they being thoughtful about this? So I can definitely see that being pretty tricky. It's like it's almost like dealing with customers, right? They don't care what's happening internally in your company. If your website goes down, it's all your fault, right? And I think actually that's that's part of why it's so valuable to to start with that IC background. I mean, I know there are places where people actually kind of go straight into management without that experience, right? Maybe they go to like a management school, or they maybe start with some like you know program management and jump straight into engineering management, and there's not really that ability to cultivate that position. A lot of what I'll do. Is, is I'll think from the perspective of myself earlier in my career of like, how would I perceive my own actions and what kind of questions would I ask? And I really try to be the harshest critic of myself so that I'm prepared for any questions anyone else has. And I really try to present it from that perspective. So I will try to break down and break apart any argument that I might have for what I'm doing and make sure that I can address those points. And a lot of, you know, a lot of what I'll do when I'm just like, you know, cooking or just kind of preparing food or whatever is I'll start like thinking these things through and just really presenting a robust argument for anything that I'm doing so that uh, I'm prepared. You know, I think that's just sort of a background process that has developed over the years now. And so I think that um, one of the areas that I really emphasize and I think I, I, I do pretty well on is trying to explain to my organization and engineering at large um, why we're doing certain things. Yes. Yeah. I think also once you progress in your career as I see, you sort of have to morph into, you know, being a manager of some sort, right? Because a large part of your job is to motivate people around you because the project is large enough that you cannot really, you know, do it yourself. And you have to be able to motivate and sympathize. Uh, from yeah, yes and no. I think that yeah. as you grow in your career, you certainly have to expand scope. No matter which path you go, you have to have increasing amounts of scope, potentially even kind of exponentially growing levels of scope. And part of that is through influence. And influence can be either intentional or not. 
And intentional leadership could be things like mentorship of other folks or being an organizational leader. Um, but it can also be something that's more, um, I don't know what, what the right word for it is. It's more kind of um, just part of, of who you are, right? You can be, for example, a thought leader in a field, or you can be a role model. And other people observing you in the way you work will uh, grow as a result. You become a force multiplier by simply being an example to look at. Um, so a lot of, of the, you know, some, some lessons I've shared to more senior contributors is that, like it or not, the people will look to you, right? You may not be trying and setting out to say, hey, this is how you should do a project, you, or, you know, hey, I'm cutting corners here, don't look at me. No matter what you do, people are going to look to you for, for uh, advice, and they're going to look to you for examples. So it, it's really important to know that not only is that a direction you have to head in as you grow your career as, as being one of greater impact and influence, but also that's your career heading towards you. No matter what you do, you're gonna have that increased influence and that increased visibility. Uh, and, and that's a responsibility to take seriously. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast from YC and uh, I think what you said really confirms what they proposed is, um, you know, companies like to write down their values, right? Facebook famously said, uh, move fast and break things. Well, now they don't break things anymore, allegedly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, companies like to put out those values uh, and want the people to follow. Um, but they are usually useless because people don't go in and read the values. People just look at who are the top performers according to the standard you set, right? And they follow that. Yeah. So that really, really, uh, you know, confirms that uh, this theory. Yep. I don't know, man. I print out a huge poster of Clavio's values and every morning I kneel before it and I, I pray. What are the values? <laughs> so no, right. I, 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 totally, <laughs> I, I totally agree with you, Seed. I mean, I think, well, let's say, for example, a company says, you know, hey, our number one value, no assholes. And like everyone there, everyone in leadership is an asshole. You're like, well, of course, I don't believe that. It's just talking points, right? Um, and so ultimately, the values have to match the people. And I, 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 gosh, I go on about values. I think the other thing they suffer from is that they're always so obvious, right? Like you need to have values that are not obvious and will motivate people and actually influence their behavior. It's not just like, hey, you know, our values are we don't defraud customers. It's like, yeah, no shit, right? I mean, so <laughs> how, do you, how do you have values that are actually influential to how people operate? Right. All right, cool. Uh, 30 seconds for you. If you have to give one advice to junior engineers, people in tech specifically, uh, what would that be? I think the, the very first thing would probably be empathize, right? That's something people always learn too late in their career and they always realize it and repeat it, the importance of it eventually. Um, the sooner you come to that realization, the better off you're gonna be. Uh, and that can come in many different forms where you know, people will say, well, hey, I'm, I'm right. I don't really care what this other person is saying, but empathize with them, understand their perspective and speak to those concerns as opposed to just putting up a wall and saying, these are the facts. Um, understand how to explain things in different ways that people will understand, understand how to justify things in different ways and argue for them. I think that empathy as a skill is undervalued and never taught. And it's something that often people have hard lessons coming to realize the importance of. So the sooner you get to that, the better off you'll be. So why did you tell me that when I joined Clavio? <laughs> well, I mean, you had a little bit of experience, so I assume you learned it already, but maybe it was wrong. <laughs> this is a lesson learned after seeds left. Yeah. Like, man, what, what did this guy do wrong? 
Yeah. Uh, and one more thing to throw in there before we transition to the next section here. And this is a question we ask every guest. Greg, what is success to you? Hmm. Well, I think success, I'll, I'll scope it to sort of a local context here, which is what I'm doing at Clavio right now. I joined because I wanted to take an engineering department from sort of early stage startup, say a dozen, a couple dozen of engineers to post IPO. I want, I want to take it to hundreds of engineers. So that to me is success, saying I have brought a company from that early stage of uncertainty where kind of anything sort of goes, you're just seeking for market fit and getting all the way to the point where you are a world-class organization. Uh, and for me, that's, that's the mark that I'm setting for myself. That's very well said, but I do want to challenge you on like a broader scope, right? Like in life uh, for you, because it is such a personal topic. What do you think is a, is a successful life in your opinion? It's a tough one. I think there's success that resonates with yourself and success that can resonate with others about you. Right. And for you, let's say one day, right, you look back at your life and you're like, man, I've lived a good life. What would you have done to make you think that? In the most abstract sense is being able to do whatever I want, right? And, and I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll say that as like legally um, a top level <laughs> statement, which there's a lot of things that feed into that. How do you give yourself the freedom of opportunity and of, um, you know, of, of, you know, resources, I suppose, to be able to, to do and pursue whatever you're interested in. Um, and, you know, part of, of what I'm doing is how do I create that opportunity for myself? How do I enable myself to accomplish and do whatever I want? Um, and that means, you know, unlocking all sorts of possibilities, getting experience. It means um, you know, being successful. These are all things that contribute to giving myself the freedom to do whatever I want in my life. So it's maximizing your optionality for things that you may be interested in. Interesting. Cool. Somewhat abstract, but that for me is where it stands right now. Yeah, I, it's really interesting to listen to the range of answers from uh, all the different guests because everyone's smart, everyone's very thoughtful, but they have very, very different ways of defining. It's almost like if you were to write a program, right, write a function and define like, this is the function you minimize or maximize when it comes to like what success is. Um, and this optionality idea around what you may be interested in is interesting. And like, the most obvious answer there is like money, obviously, is going to help you open up a lot of doors. Uh, but I think also it comes down to like, for example, if you're interested in pursuing certain hobbies, like your physical health matters, uh, or you could argue physical health always matters above a certain, uh, like above a certain baseline, right? If you're so unhealthy that like you can't really do a lot, uh, or your ability to empathize with other people, right? If if, if you want to make change in the world and you know, like being able to build organizations, things like that, so. I think it's a good answer because like, it's simple to begin with, but once you start to chew on it, it's actually, it could be a lot of things. Yeah, and you know, for myself personally, I've always found that whenever I reflect on myself from a few years ago, I'm like, huh, I was sort of a different person at that point. I'm always someone who changes, has different interests, and um, part of what I'm looking to optimize for is encompassing that, saying I'm gonna have different desires, interests, you know, five, 10 years from now, and I wanna make sure that I maximize that success when I get to there. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but I want to make sure I'm ready. So just quick question. When it comes to do whatever you want, does that list include buying me a yacht? Uh, I mean, it depends. You want like a little inflatable <laughs> one? It's got like a, a little yellow dot on the side. I can arrange for that. 
can I, can I put a mine on the wish list? I just want a plane. <laughs> a Cessna will do. I'm not asking for anything crazy. All right. All right. It might not fly, but you know, <laughs> a paper plane, something like that. Um, cool. So Greg, really appreciate you diving into your life story and your thoughts on career. Um, a lot of our listeners are always interested in, you know, finding their path to success and really understanding like what success should look like. Uh, it's a harder question to answer than it seems. Um, now we're going to flip the script a little bit. And um, Greg, do you have any questions for us and anything you would like to dive into? Yep, sure. So the, the first one you know, might be a bit of a spicy one, but uh, this time of year we, we do our annual reviews. And so I always think about um, what, what goes into that? What are the inputs? What are the outputs? What are some of the biases that everyone has? Just trying to be as self-aware as possible because really I'm, as always, not trying to sleepwalk through this. I really want to make sure we're being very intentional about it. So I'm gonna ask you know both of you, as as Asian Americans, you know, have you yourself encountered cases, either yourself or seen with other people, where you felt your identity as an Asian American led to how your performance was viewed, either positively or negatively? Okay, mm -hmm. I can I can tackle this first. <clears throat> first of all, uh, respectfully, I'm not Asian American. He's <laughs> uh, <laughs> just Asian. Yeah, as an Asian immigrant as well. As an Asian immigrant, how do you feel about that? No, I always jokingly tell people that um, uh, I'm unpolitically Chinese. Uh, so what that means, I, I don't really identify with, uh, like not, not trying to say I'm, I'm better than anyone's, but just, just like my root is in China. Um, the beauty I appreciate from my culture, like it's all Chinese, right? There's nothing American about it. At least I like to think, it, think that way. That's not the case uh, <laughs> in reality. But um, so, so, so the reason why I say that is, is because... Um, to sympathize with a lot of struggles that Asian Americans have, sometimes I need to change my lenses uh, because I don't view things uh, the same way as, uh, you know, quote unquote, Asian Americans who grew up in the U.S. do, right? Uh, there's, you know, stop Asian hate uh, is, is a big movement here, rightfully so, but just a lot of things that bother this group of people doesn't bother me. Like, I don't care about how Americans think of Asian Americans in terms of, you know, they blame China for COVID. Uh, or, I mean, this conspiracy uh, theory that, um, you know, it's, it's lab grown uh, in China. At least it used to be a conspiracy theory. Um, like, I don't, I guess I don't uh, really get triggered by that in terms of uh, that my perspective is always, uh, you know, I, I'm Chinese, I'm here to study, to learn, to grow, but I will go back to China one day, right? Um, so have I, I gotta say, see, for someone yeah. who identifies as a, as a Chinese person, you're not yeah. very collectivist, you're, you're very individualistic. Is that uh, the American side wearing off on you? Or? For me, the, the, the value or the, the beauty of Chinese culture, at, at least from my perspective, is its diversity. Because the history is so long, and the culture is so diverse, you can basically pick whatever you believe in, <laughs> uh, in, in Chinese traditional cultures, right? Uh, there, there's a famous saying that uh, which means if you're poor, go work on yourself. If you're rich, try to change the world, try to shape the world uh, based on your own image and, and, and uh, moral beliefs, right? So. You basically can pick whatever side you want. Uh, and uh, there's definitely very, um, I would say, individualistic uh, views of things uh, in, in Chinese traditional culture. But, but 
I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, this is a very long-winded way to say, um, I sometimes have to find a better angle to sympathize. Would you say that people will associate or ascribe motivations based on their national identity or perceived national identity? And, and that's, that will color how their, their work is viewed. Yeah, I think that's a very uh, succinct way to put it. How about you, Hanson? In terms of, yeah, job performance and how people get viewed in that lens. I think two things are true. One, you are absolutely treated differently based on your perceived identity. Uh, in this case, Asian American, but I think it also applies to all kinds of identities, right? Whether it's your gender, your perceived orientation, your hair color, your size, like depending on the profession where that may matter. But it's also true, uh, in my opinion, that it's uh, possible to pick a more productive mindset than one of uh, victimhood, right? So the first one I think is self-evident. Hopefully this isn't that much of a, a debate uh, that factually we treat dif people differently. I think there are tons of uh, explicit and implicit biases uh, you know, on different groups of people. The second thing though, I think is more interesting, which is what mindset do you adopt? And this is something I actually uh, experienced myself uh, and sort of saw, saw it firsthand when I uh, came to the US for college. And I remember distinctly thinking that, man, there are some, uh, you know, Asian American kids that I hang out with that didn't see the world as theirs. It almost felt like they had limitations that they were either okay with, right? They're just like, oh, of course, they're not going to pick me for X, Y, and Z. Uh, or they're like angry with it and they're out to prove that these things aren't true, Um and, you know, in my mind, because I grew up in China and I was the de facto majority everything and, you know, Asian <laughs> male in China, right? Like uh, I, I wasn't in a quote unquote marginalized group. Um, I didn't have that mindset. I was like, of course I can be the most successful. Of course I can be in charge. Like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean the first Asian X, first Asian Y, right? Personally, I think it's more productive to have a mindset that, you know, even if the game's rigged, you still got to play to win. You can't give up. You can't recognize that these are your like limitations in society. And I think it goes beyond just job performance, but I think job performance is obviously a very important aspect of it. And, and I think one thing that's subtle to tease apart here is that, especially in the tech industry, which we're all part of, Asians are overrepresented, right? We're right. 30, oh, yeah. oh, sometimes 40% of the workforce <laughs> when we're what? Overrepresented. Right. Yeah, right. Maybe 10% yeah, yeah. of the US population, right? So I think that. Um, that's one element where you can say, oh, there's plenty of examples of people, there's plenty of representation in the field, that's not a problem. But then you have to look at what's the distribution of different levels of roles. That's and right. so how do you separate what is a very clear presence in the tech industry and perhaps disparities in certain roles or levels? Uh, and so what are some of those very specifically sort of tech industry biases that might occur against Asians, against Asian Americans, against and perceived to be Asian or Asian Americans? And so things that come to mind for me is, you know, those those comments that you hear of like communication skills or people right. being, uh, you know, personable, right? And, and it's like I, those, those things that I think I feel like we've all heard examples of that in the past. And it's like, how do you how do you reconcile that? How do you how do you how do you address that? Oh, God, it's it's almost like that that stereotype uh, that oh, like the Asian kids, they're like nerdy, they're super hardworking, but they're awkward and weird, and they don't get along with people. And I don't know, man, I don't know if they're the best fit for this leadership position. Am I right? You know, like I imagine that's 
no one explicitly says that, but I think that's kind of a stereotype that's out there. And I wonder if that plays into, as you're saying, like the uneven distribution across some levels, right? So I don't know if it's just me being a psychopath. I actually get excited <laughs> when I hear a good <laughs> when I hear about those comments, right? To me, it's an advantage if they assume I lack those skills, right? They will be surprised when I when I actually demonstrate I do a better job than expected. And here's this Chinese mindset coming, I guess. Yeah, sure. You you think I cannot be in leadership role? I'll just start my own company. <laughs> I can even go back to my own country and uh, start a billion dollar company, and that rivals you in any scale you can imagine, right? Like we see examples from the other side of the world that is run by people of my skin color, right? So like I don't lack examples that demonstrate you're completely wrong. <laughs> so why would I be bothered by your stupid evaluation of this outdated model of the world in any remote way, right? I would just use that, I guess, in a twisted manner to my own advantage. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I definitely see that, right? In, in terms of, you know, you can still drive yourself forward with or without these individual support. Um, but I, I think ultimately right. for some people, right, some people will really value that sense of belonging of saying, hey, like I'm, I'm valued for what I bring uh, and I don't have to, you know, swim, swim upstream in order to, to, to get that recognition. But anyways, yeah, I, I think yeah, point no, taken. But. That is a good question. I think there's a greater theme in my life as well, which is I tend to go out and try to like break stereotypes and try to do the, th take the road less traveled. And it applies beyond professional stuff. In a way, I think I do care, right? I And I it does really affect me. And I think the way I cope with it is I'm basically of the out to prove people wrong camp. I think a key reason why, despite my major in electrical and computer engineering and the background in it and you know the initial job as an engineer, I chose not to continue on an individual contributor engineering track precisely because, or at least partially because, um, I hated to play into people's hands. I hate it when people ask me questions and just assumed like, oh, you work at this company. Oh, so you're an engineer, right? You, you have some hobbies, so you, you like this X, Y, Z, right? And I'm like, no, screw you. I, I'm gonna pick a different path. That's why I chose a small liberal arts college instead of going to some well-known big university that has a big Asian community, right? Or like especially Chinese community of Chinese kids who sit on the same table and they have this whole very insular uh, you know, life there. But in another way, I'm also hoping that you know by doing this and sort of being that data point that stands outside the trend line, I can beat that path for other people. So others like me can say, hey, there are examples out there who are just very different and I can be that too. I think it's pretty interesting that Hanson growing up is, I think it's, more, it's fair to say you're more quote unquote good kid, right? Uh, in, in the traditional sense back in China. And uh, you know, you're more popular uh, in the sense that uh, People around you admired you, uh, admired your uh, academic success. But when I was back in China, I guess I have a very interesting upbringing where when I was younger, I was pretty successful in my quote unquote academic career. <laughs> but uh, when I grew older, I become really rebellious and just becomes this wild kid <laughs> that's pretty much hated by the school system, right? So I don't fit in anywhere not just in the US. It's not because I, I guess I'm trying to say, not because I'm a Chinese, I don't fit in. Even when I'm in China, I don't fit in. So I don't give a fuck. <laughs> when I, like, when I, when I, when I, when I uh, uh, you know, studied in the US, I actually enjoy being different. 
And for sure, I mean, I think part of this is as you kind of reflect upon past interactions or like, you know, conversations you've had, evaluations that have been given to you, how do you tease apart that thread that's different from seed being seed? And hey, mm -hmm. we perceive you this way. And we're going to craft our feedback into a certain box that we think you belong in. And, and so I, I guess I certainly get there's going to be a lot of things that are very particular to just you as a person, see, but there are going to be other things too, where it's like, yeah, th these are some biases that are creeping in. But why would I care? Like, why should I care? I think the struggle of racism, right, of biases are very different scales, right? In terms of, uh, I think there will always be biases in society. It's very hard to regulate against biases. The best you can yeah, do. Yeah, right. and, and I don't think that there's necessarily a, um, one, a, a statement of the magnitude of what these biases are, or uh, necessarily a prescription for what we should do about it. But the reason I ask about this is, um, I always try to be as self-aware, as introspective as possible, as I think about how I value people, how I value engineers when I talk about their performance, especially in the light of performance reviews, because uh, you know, I, I don't want to run an autopilot during these. I want to, uh, I want to question everything that I'm thinking and be really rigorous about this. Um, you know, and the same thing I've heard a bit of advice applying to interviews where, you know, come up with a decision in the first 10 seconds and then spend the rest of the interview just proving that, right? Hmm. Same exact way with performance reviews. I should have an initial impression and then do everything I possibly can to disprove that. So I have three thoughts on this topic. One seed for the record, uh, I think there's a huge sampling bias here, but I wouldn't consider myself a good kid in school either, though compared to you, you were definitely more of a misfit. Uh, but in school, I also had the similar thread of sort of rebelling and questioning authority and getting into a lot of trouble. The difference there is I got really good grades, so teachers couldn't do much about it, uh, even though I didn't- Yeah, you're smarter really is what you're trying to say, sure. Uh, well, academically, I did better, how about that? At least in a certain part of my life. Uh, the second thought there, which is a conversation I've had with Seed somewhat recently that answers Greg's question, I think, to some extent, which is how do you attribute what percentage of this like deviation in your personality behavior from the norm as like just you being Seed, your individuality versus what percentage of this is actually influenced by society's perception of you or, you know, these like Asian stereotypes of you? I think something I heard put pretty well and I think summarizes what Seed and I talked about is all models are wrong. Some are useful. And so like, this is a little bit similar to like nature versus nurture uh, debate about like, oh, why are different nations of people behaving differently? Is it genetic? Is it their upbringing? Is it culture? Like anytime you separate any group into two and you compare anything, statistically, there's always going to be a difference, right? Uh, how do you attribute that? I don't know if there's a right answer to that question. I think how you tease it apart has a greater impact on your outcome than the result of said teasing apart, if that makes sense. So it goes back to like your mindset, uh, which leads me, I think, to my third point, which is, you know, at this point in my life, I don't feel that I have the right skills or aspirations to help society correct its biases that in an ideal world would not be there. So I think at this point, I choose the more useful model that would advance my own success personally. And maybe at some point that, you know, emphasis will shift and I would like to shift my focus and help other people uh, and then 
how can I do things differently to really more consciously, for example, right, becoming a people leader, I think, is a great motivation for you to be a little more conscious of these biases and try to, you know, really steer people's lives in slightly better direction that hopefully adds up to something very impactful. And I would definitely encourage you to start curating that line of thinking or the, the kind of talk track in your own head. You don't have to be in a position right away to start saying, yeah, I'm going to impact things. I'm going to change how, how other people think. But start start developing your own convictions. Um, you know, Use that as a foundation to build upon and keep that inside your head. And when it's time, it's, it's, it's time to, to use that. But I think that um, don't, don't shy away from it. I think that is something that uh, you can engage in at any time. Yeah, I have a working theory around, you know, these things. We always talk about biases and biases necessarily lead to inequalities, inequities, and sort of just like hard and difficult things that people experience. I've, I know what it's like, and I'm sure most listeners can uh, empathize with the experience of going through a hardship and then wondering how much of that is because of the factors they can't control, right? The identities that they're associated with. And it's a difficult experience. And my current working theory maybe is a little too radical is the best way to eliminate differences between groups is to eliminate those groups. In my mind, a a long future is one where race and gender and much of the existing immutable properties you're assigned at birth ceases to be relevant. And this can be done in a variety of ways on different time horizons. For example, if people kept traveling and mingling and communicating as much as they do, cultures are start to blend together. You see that in America. Races are going to start to blend together genetically. Given an infinitely long timeline, everything sort of homogenizes. Now, there will always be, I think, human nature, always find ways to draw in groups and out groups. There's always going to be different classes. Conflicts will always arise among some schism in any collection of people. So on an even longer time horizon, what's possible is the elimination of human nature. And there's a whole bigger debate about what makes us human and what matters. But to me, what really matters is, I think at the core of our existence as a species and as individuals is our curiosity to learn more and to grow. I think as an intelligence, and this grows beyond the human flesh body as we are today, I just want some derivative or descendant of us to go explore the universe and understand things that we couldn't possibly imagine today. And maybe they're not in the form of us, but they were somehow created and descendant from our thinking. These could be robots, artificial intelligence of some kind, or a hybrid. And then maybe we can have interstellar wars of really different things and, you know, fight over different things. And to some extent, I kind of just don't think that we'll ever reach like a real peace and, you know, unity and things like that. Maybe on a local level in some places it's possible, but man, look at nature. It's brutal out there. I feel like, you know, whatever happens, we're always going to be struggling with something. My hope is we stick around long enough to make things interesting and to have different things to struggle with. Yeah, the, the, the places we defer the most is the value can I attribute to cultures and histories to different groups. An ideal world for me is a world with a lot of pride, but no prejudice, right? I think there are values in conflicts. I think there are values in miscommunications because the culture is different. I think a very good invention of, of life, it's, it's the best fight of the universe against entropy. And I think civilization is the combination of that, right? There's a lot of beauty in observing 
how different group of people uh, tell themselves stories and narratives and belief systems, right? Just simply because they originate from different parts of the world, right? If if ever comes a day, they can find a way to feel pride, to find pride in those stories, but also appreciate other people's stories. Um, I feel that's a better world to live in. Uh, I'm less interested in fighting interstellar uh, wars. Um, I value more. Um, I value more that uh, we still have a story to tell after a thousand years. Yeah. Greg is like you guys are. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, you're high. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I'm a fan of speculative and hard science fiction, far future stuff. So I, I'm I'm more on the side of well, more on the side of I guess interstellar wars than than. But I do think that it, it will be interesting to see how discussions around culture and identity evolve with technology as well. And I think that we've already seen so many changes over the last, you know, let's say two decades as people become more interconnected. But at the same time, we also see increasing levels of tribalism and, and you know, creating smaller communities that are still possible, even with the connections that are that are present. And is that an inherent part of human nature, the idea to simplify and to create smaller known groups, the ability to categorize and to generalize and to, and to assess? Or are there ways to combat against that? You know, one, one thought I have in this kind of area, I was talking about this in a, a different context with some of my peers um, a couple months back. There's the idea of your innate self and there's the idea of your active self. And your innate self is just sort of you know, who you will be if you're going on autopilot, your own, you know, initial reactions, your own prejudices, and your active self is who you want to be. And, and we all have control over that. But not everyone taps into that active self at all times. And they, they you know, lean back into their innate self more than they perhaps should. And I think that how do we create the, the best active self that we have? And maybe that's, that's the element of where we can evolve from. It's very deep. Cool. One thing I want to sneak in there is... Um... What's up with the turtles, man? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's just it's it's a pet, right? I mean, so I, I had a turtle uh, first when I was younger. It, uh, had a family had a vacation home in New Hampshire, and so it was uh, a lake that had some turtles in it. And so we had a pet turtle for a little bit. Um, Wait, you caught one of the turtles? From we we the caught lake. one of the turtles, and we, we had it for a little bit. We we let it go after a little while. Um, but then eventually I got a turtle as a pet later in life. And, you know, turtles, as you might know, live a very long time. But my turtle right now is, I think, 14, 15 years old, so. Uh, is it is yeah. it delicious? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I was actually just hearing a story over Thanksgiving about how my uh, my aunts and uncles on my uh, my mom's side, they, they had this childhood memory of my grandmother bringing home turtles. And they're like, oh my God, we're getting a family pet. No, no. <laughs> the next day they had soup. <laughs> oh my God. I think the best part uh, is the, the, the one that tastes tasty. Oh, that's my take. <laughs> yeah. You should get a pet pig then. I did. I'm growing to one. <laughs> yeah. On that note, um, Greg, thank you very much for coming on the show. We'd love to have you back sometime. It's been a pleasure, Hanson and Steve. Thank All you right. very much. Thanks, man. All right. See ya.